everybody. What's this 95 breaking kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry? Oh, Barry, a very special episode of Breaking Kayfabe is because while this show gets broadcast, you're going to be in the middle of a fucking vacation, my man. I am going to be in the Jeff. I uh, I started doing the math on this one, and we actually extended our vacation. And I am gone from the state of Pennsylvania for 17 full days, driving down. And, and my drive down, I'm going to go a little slower than I normally do. I usually do it in, uh, I usually stay overnight one night and then make it down. This is going Philadelphia to the Tampa area, but I'm actually going to spend the first night in Fayetteville. I can make that in roughly between eight and nine hours. Second night, Daytona. And then I'm going to go pick up my daughter, Zoe, in Orlando. We'll head over to the Tampa area. And then we're going to spend four days at Universal Studios. We have booked a hotel. So they have a hotel, Jeff, that is dog-friendly. It's pet-friendly. That's always good. Oh, I'm very excited about that. It's actually a really nice hotel. It's called Sapphire Falls. And we have booked four nights there. So, yeah, it's really exciting. I uh, I, I haven't taken a cross-country road trip by myself. And when I say by myself, I am going to have Ozzy with me. But without You're never a... truly by yourself if Ozzy's with you, Barry. No, I'm not. And I, and I really should have rephrased that because I'm not. But Usually I, I either split up the driving with either uh, would would have been my wife or my I thought son. you were going to say Ozzy. Uh, he's, a, he's a very intelligent dog. He can drive while you sleep. Very smart dog. Very yeah. smart dog. But uh, I'm going it, to it's going to be an epic vacation. I'm real excited. And, you know, it's it's such a, uh, you know, in a year that has had a lot of changes for everyone on every different level. And certainly for me personally and. You know, I think I've adapted extremely well, but I'm really looking forward to spending, quote unquote, alone time with Zoe, where, you know, I, it's just a father and daughter on a, a nice vacation for, you know, for a week and a half, almost two weeks, which is great. So, yeah, I'm really excited about it, Jeff. Well, I'm just going to say that. Uh, hold on, Bear. I'm, I'm getting a little choked up here. Oh, I'm going to miss you, man. I'm going to miss you while you're on vacation. Oh. OK, I've recovered. On this episode, besides hearing the tearful uh, strains of, of my boy Barry going on vacation, we will be talking this date in CWF history, June 29th. We are going to be, oh, the Tennessee stud's going to be joining us, Bear. He's going to be talking about Don Curtis, and he's going to be telling a good story about Don, a bit of a, uh, a scuba diver, snorkeler, that kind of thing. He's going to be giving us a story about uh, Don Curtis. We're also going to be talking rock songs that represent the genre. Never a bad time to use the word genre. Am I correct, Bear? What a great word genre is. And what I like about the word genre is that if you didn't know how genre was spelled, imagine trying. So English is a second language. We're going to use the word genre. How do we spell that? Nobody would ever figure out how to spell that fucking word. And on that note, this is a smooth transition here, Barry. We're going from genre to John McAdam. Oh, oh, oh. Woo, woo, smooth as silk, Barry, because Johnny Mac from the Stick to Wrestling podcast, you may have heard of it, maybe you haven't, uh, has joined us today because we are going to be talking about a match from January 22nd, 1980 in Allentown, PA. Well, they're living here in Allentown. Yes, I know everybody loves hearing me sing Billy Joel songs. We're talking a little Bruno San Martino. Versus what? That 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 no good son of a that Judas Larry Zabisco. Oh, it's the big angle. Johnny Mac's gonna be joining us to give his thoughts. What do you say we jump right into that bear? Let's do it, my man. 
So, Barry, recently we saw a photo posted of CWF great Don Curtis. He was doing a little, uh, I don't know, snorkeling, scuba diving, had him a nice catch. And lo and behold, our friend, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, commented and said, I would love to talk to you and Barry about this photo and some Don Curtis stories. Barry, we're joined by the man himself, the Tennessee stud, newly relocated back to Tennessee. It's Ron Fuller. Ron, thanks for joining us, my man. Oh, you're welcome, uh, Jeff. Uh, great being on there. And, um, you know, and uh, hello to Barry and everybody else there. And uh, and your, and your I think you know there. our producer, Sweet Lou. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm very familiar with Sweet Lou. And uh, and I know why you call him that, man. I mean, he, he takes care of business and he does it so, so sweetly, you know. <laughs> um, so, yes. It's like uh, a fine barbecue sauce from Memphis. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. So, so anyway, so we saw this photo of Don Curtis with the, the catch of the day, apparently. And you said you had an amazing Don Curtis story that you wanted to share with us. So first of all, tell us about your relationship with Don. Uh, when did you first meet Don? And then tell us the circumstances of the photo in question. I probably met Don for the first time when I was about uh, 15. Might have been 15 years old. Uh, he came and worked in Atlanta. My dad was a uh, promoter there and with Ray Gunkel. And Don was uh, big in Florida, obviously, at that point, and had been for many, many years uh, kind of uh, in business with uh, Eddie Graham. And he was wrestling on that card. And God, what a tremendous athlete he was. I mean, you could just see it when he when he worked. He was just, he was in such good shape. And when I saw that picture, it really brought back memories for me. Uh, first of all, he did have a spear gun, you know, and, and uh, in that picture, he had the spear gun and he had a, uh, it was a big grouper. <laughs> wow, big old mammoth grouper, man. Uh, I don't know how many, probably at least uh, 200 pounds, maybe more, you know, monster fish. And uh, he was famous for being able to hold his breath for an extended period of time. And he was just a tremendous athlete, period. So and I, and I had a story, and as soon as I saw that picture, and then everybody was making remarks. Well, did you think he uh, speared that fish? You know, or and obviously he did spear that fish because he had the ability to to stay down for two, three minutes, uh, maybe even more. My dad told me that reminded me of a story about Dad and Eddie and Don Curtis went to the Bahamas. And they were in, I don't know, it was Abaco or where, whatever island it was there. They had a cave. There, and uh, you went through a cave. You dived down about uh, 30, 40 feet. And they had tanks on at this point. And then you swam through this long cave. And uh, Dad said the cave was, he, he estimated that it was uh, between 50 and 100 yards long. And uh, you came up on the far end of it inside. It was a tunnel, and you came up inside a cave. I've done some cave diving, and you know you've got to get to the cave, and most of the time you've got to go through some type of tunnel or something to get there. And then once you pop up, you're inside a cave. You can take your equipment off, and he said it was a big, nice cave. So he said he and Lester and Eddie and and Don Curtis were uh, off over there together, and they all dived, and they so they all went inside the cave, through this long tunnel inside the cave. And when they got ready to leave the cave, 
Curtis says to him, he goes, uh, guys, they're all putting on their tanks and he wasn't putting on his tank. So dad picked up on it and he goes, uh, Don, uh, <laughs> what's the deal, man? You know, you're going to go back out, aren't you? You're not staying in here, are you? And he goes, no, no. He goes, I think I can make it all the way without my tank. And they all freaked, the three of them freaked. Dad said, oh, God, Don, come on, man. Because, wow, you know, that tunnel is really, really a long one, man. And, uh, you know, we're we're really concerned about you being able to do that, you know. I want to try it. He says, I want to try it. So they they all talk about it for a few minutes. And then they say, you know, I think Dad said, uh, you know, he went about halfway through the tunnel and he took Don's gear with him. So he sat down in the in the big tunnel way, and he said it was probably an opening that was 10 feet across, and he waited on it. And uh, at the far end, uh, Lester kind of followed along behind him, and Eddie went through to the far end to come, you know, partially way toward the end of the tunnel to back to see if he needed any help. So they were going to be there to take care of him if something did happen. So I asked Dad, I said, well, how did that go, Dad? And he said, well, he says, I sat down there and he said, uh, Curtis dropped down in there, dived off into the into the deal and he went into the tunnel. And he said, when he got to me, he said, I took the regulator and I stuck it out to him like, here it is, you know, if you need it. And he said, he just waved at me with one hand and just continued on his way. And he said, they had no problem at all going the entire tunnel. Uh, and giving out the far side, uh, Eddie, no, nobody had to help him with anything at all. He just had that tremendous set of lungs, and uh, what a tremendous athlete! Just really, really an amazing dude. What he could do. Yeah, well, I, I don't think there's any uh, you know, people that are, have any kind of knowledge of uh, Don Curtis in his career. Of course, a great college uh, amateur wrestler. So uh, obviously this guy, even, you know, well after his college years and all the years in pro wrestling, maintained himself in peak physical shape. Oh, absolutely. And you never saw him without being in great shape. Uh, I got one other one. This one is quite a bit different. Uh, Well, okay. I suppose Barry will let him tell the story. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) So this one takes place uh, in about 1971 when I was my first year there in Florida, and I was in the snake pit quite a bit, and somebody had wrote a really, really nasty article in the Tampa paper, the sports sports writer, about wrestling being phony and fake, and oh man, and it was horrible. I remember picking up the paper and seeing it before I went to the office, and I was like, oh God, what is Eddie going to (laughs) do? Eddie sees this, it's going to be crazy. And boy, Eddie was on fire. He was so mad. So he got a hold of the paper. And, you know, Eddie had a really good reputation there. And people liked him. And they they tried to take care of wrestling. Probably they took better care of wrestling in that city than they did most cities as far as the media was concerned. They Because of Eddie's relationship with the Boys Ranch, Boys Club Ranch, and all those different things and the things he was doing to help the community on, on a regular basis. So uh, Eddie goes down and he talks to the, the, the head of the sports department and then they, they send the guy out there about a week later with a photographer. And so Don Curtis is there 
and and a lot of guys showed up. Uh, Jack Briscoe's there that day. Then Don Curtis was there. Bob Roop was there. I was there. Hero Matsuda was there. Uh, Mike Graham was there. But it was nobody else. It wasn't the day in which you were going to uh, to hurt marks. You know, it was the day in which you were going to, uh, to stand up for the business, basically. So they got the guy into the ring, and, uh, and the first thing he did was with Jack Briscoe. And, uh, and the guy knew a little bit of wrestling, but a little bit of amateur wrestling. And uh, so he told Jackie, you know, he says, uh, I'd like to get an Oklahoma ride on you, right? Which is a very simple amateur technique of really holding somebody and controlling somebody. You can't beat them. Or you can't pin them with it, but you, it's a good control move. And then so he, Jack got on his hands and knees. And the guy, that's, now this is the sports writer that had written the article, he got on behind him and he grapevine one leg and then he, he crossed his body diagonally and hooked the arm and he had his Oklahoma ride. So uh, Jack was very, very nice and polite. And so Jack just put his hands down and, his, and then he stood up on his toes and his hands like he was a giant spider almost. And this guy's just stretched now across his back. And uh, he's pretty helpless up there. So Jack's talking to him and he says, you know, this is a pretty good hold. He goes, but you really can't do anything to hurt anybody like this. And he goes, there's a lot of different ways to get you off. He says, but I, I, I want to show you one way. And he took, now he's holding himself up with one hand and he took his other hand and he reached over by his left hand. He took his right hand and he drew a big X on the mat. And he says, uh, see that spot right there? And the guy goes, yes. And he goes, that's where your head's going. And he <laughs> dropped him face first. Wow. Ouch. Oh, I God. mean, he drove his head into that mat. Wow. We were all like, oh, geez. Whoa. And uh, so then, you know, the guy's, you know, he's still not convinced. So Eddie says, what is it that it would take to convince you? And he says, uh, well, the sleeper hold. He goes, and, you know, people say that the, the sleeper uh, hold, hold on, is Ron, a, Ron uh, yeah. Barry, are you getting the feeling this story's not going to end well for the guy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's probably an understatement right now, Jeff. <laughs> Go ahead, Ron. <laughs> so he makes his case that, you know, that you can't do that and it doesn't work. And, you know, and, and it'd be so easy to fake that and all that stuff. So Don Curtis gets into the ring and he goes, well, you know, he goes, I tend to believe you're, you're, you're absolutely wrong about that. He goes, I, I think you can put a person to sleep. So they had a photographer with the guy. So the photographer took a picture of Jack driving his face into the mat. And now photographer takes the shot of uh, Don Curtis. Don Curtis gets behind him and he's talking to him real sweet and kind and low and calm. And he's explaining to him, he goes, you know, well, the way this hold works is you've got, I've got this carotid artery over here and, and I'm going to get around the side of your neck and I'm going to get that one over there. And while he's talking to the guy and, and he tells the guy, you okay, you okay? And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, you know, this, this, you're not hurting me. I can't feel anything. And he says, yeah, but I haven't applied the hold. And while he says that, he clamps down on it and the guy went out. Wow. The guy went out instantly and he just dropped his hands, dropped down by his waist. And uh, Don had him by the head still, had him around the head. And Don just laid him back on his back. Then the photographer is taking pictures. Wow. The photographer, you could tell he was like into it. Like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> I've really got him dear. 
and he's taking all these shots of him. He takes a shot of him laying down. He takes a shot of uh, Don holding him with his arms hanging down. And then Don reaches down and he sets him up on his butt, pops him on the back of the neck. And the, and the guy almost leaps to his feet and he goes, yeah, see there? He said, I told you you couldn't do it. <laughs> so, so the photographer goes, oh, no, 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 whatever his name was. Oh, Jim, uh, no, no, no. Goes, You've been out for probably 30 or 40 seconds. <laughs> You've definitely been asleep. He says, you got to show me the pictures. <laughs> he goes, I can't believe it. I've been asleep. He goes, okay, yeah, he put you to sleep right away. So Don Curtis was a tremendous, tremendous uh, dude, man, and uh, and a tough son of a gun. And knew knew how to take care of himself. And that snake pit thing down there in 106 North Albany was something that was really, really to be feared by people that didn't know what they were getting into. Yeah, it is incredible. I've got some photos, some black and white photos that were taken by Jerry Prater. And I'm going to assume these are mid-60s, 65, 66, somewhere around there. And it's Don Curtis in the ring putting fans to sleep. And Gordon Soley is with him with a microphone. Some of these photos are great because as Don is putting these people out, and you can actually see like their eyes rolling in the back of their head. Gordon's right there with the microphone. Like he's got the mic in front of the guy's face who's just completely unconscious. But I'm assuming this was something that they did, I don't know, regularly, but every so often they would actually do this publicly. And I think it was a good move. I mean, you know, it's you've got this hold the sleeper hold, which obviously you're trying to get over as a finisher. And at the same time, you're putting marks to sleep. I mean, is there better publicity than that? There's no better. Can't be. Yeah. No better. I mean, uh, you know, you you show people and uh, and that's the best example that you can give them is you actually put those kind of holds on them. A lot of guys used to do some strange stuff. My dad, when he got ready to do a big match in Atlanta with Mario Galento, for three weeks, he went down to the wrestling office. They had a wrestling office there that had a was a nightclub, and they had a ring that they set up there on the weekends. And he would bring marks in on the weekends, and he would shoot with them. And he would end up putting the toehold on them, his fuller leg lock on them. And, uh, wow, I mean, you know. All they had to do was send down, you know, and they sent down to get sports people, sent down a crew to see how this was going to happen, how this was going to work. You know, is he really going to wrestle anybody that shows up? And he did. He wrestled anybody that came and he put most of them, uh, made most of them give up with his toehold. He got the toehold on them. And uh, it's very convincing. You know, it's mostly convincing to the guy that gets it put on him, though. Sure. The I'm guy sure, that yeah. suffers the pain is the one that never forgets it. <laughs> so, I was just wondering if that reporter, Ron, if the uh, the cameraman was uh, able to get any shots of the drool running out of his mouth after Don cinched in the hole. <laughs> I don't remember him drooling. I remember. <laughs> I just remember how quick it was. It was almost instantaneous when Don clamped down. It, it, within three seconds, it seemed like the guy was gone. I'd never seen anybody go that fast. And uh, and I think Don probably did it a little bit firmer than he usually would because of the article. <laughs> I'm sure he read the article too. <laughs> he probably and the article. The article's interesting to me because the office and Eddie Graham and, and Cowboy had a relationship with the local papers with Tom McEwen, which you know. 
But there was an instance, and I want to say was right around this this could be it. It was right around 1973. And a reporter had written, and this wasn't one of the normal reporters that was covering wrestling in the Tampa Bay area, but a reporter had written this tongue-in-cheek review of a big card in St. Petersburg, and Eddie blew a gasket. And I wonder, I have a feeling this is this is all related to it. It could be. Yeah. It could have been the article that uh, that I'm talking about, you know, because I was there from 1970 to 74, and it yeah. might have been 73 when I was in there. Might have been uh, on a Wednesday, uh, television day or whatever. And so, you know, I might have been, been there. I lived in West Palm after 71. I went to West Palm and started promoting in West Palm for Eddie and my dad. And uh, I just went back to Tampa usually then on Tuesday nights. And I would stay over and come in on Wednesdays to do the TV. We should say, too, you were also a real estate agent in West Palm Beach. Yeah, yeah. I almost quit wrestling. And in fact, if it hadn't been for the oil embargo about 1973, I would have quit wrestling uh, because I had started uh, making septic tanks, fiberglass septic tanks with a friend of mine. And uh, West Palm was just in the big growth spurt, and God knows how many septic tanks are down there now. Probably unbelievable, but we started making septic tanks, and we were selling for $800 a septic tank. And uh, the oil embargo came, and you could not get, can't remember the product that you made the septic tanks out of, but uh, you couldn't get that anymore because of the oil shortage. And I went back to wrestling. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you uh, and I got into uh, to real estate, you know. I was pretty disenchanted for a little bit, and I almost left wrestling. And thank goodness for the oil embargo. I guess that's what I'd have to say. Kept me from uh, leaving the sport. So, Ron, I got a question that's unrelated to anything we've talked about here. I just want to ask, uh, I want you to put on your promoter's hat, as you're wont to say on the Studcast. So, recently, I had a chance to watch on A&E. They're doing these uh, biographies of wrestlers. And recently, I had a chance to watch the one with Shawn Michaels. And the reason I'm asking this question is, of course, there's a famous incident in uh, Shawn Michaels' career where he's uh, out one night with a couple of guys, a couple of the boys, and they're in a bar, and he's kind of being obnoxious with some Marines that happen to be in the bar, might have been, allegedly, could have been hitting on one of the Marines' uh, uh, girlfriends or something like that. And so it goes outside. And the Marines, basically, there were supposedly six of them, pretty much took care of Shawn Michaels and uh, beat him up pretty bad. It makes the newspaper and, and all that kind of stuff. Now, my question for you, Ron Fuller promoter, is you're talking about a guy that Ric Flair on the show said is, quote, unquote, the most talented guy in the history of wrestling. Okay, so if you're a promoter and you've got a guy that's that talented, but as a promoter, it gets out in the paper that this guy was in a bar and got his ass handed to him by a couple of Marines. Of course, the obvious answer is you get beat up in your wrestler, you get canned. But if you're dealing with the guy that's like your main event guy, who's the most talented guy on your roster, how do you think you would have handled that situation? <laughs> I, I want to tell you, my dad had that situation and uh, he had it in Memphis, Tennessee. In uh, the late 1950s, with Sputnik Monroe, who was his top heel, 
And Sputnik had a little problem with drinking every once in a while. And the, they had a fair there every year. And they had a big rodeo that was there for a whole week. And Sputnik goes down there on a Saturday night, I guess, uh, to the rodeo. And he's had a few to drink or whatever. And he he, he wants to pick a fight with uh, cowboys, with some of the cowboys, right? And, uh, you know, Dad doesn't know anything about it. And he, he's even gone further than Sean. He's got his, his uh, Tennessee heavyweight championship belt on. He's walking around back there behind the, behind the rodeo arena, and he's He's uh, trying to pick a fight. And so he finally finds this cowboy. And uh, he he starts out, he says to the cowboy, he, you know, and this is the way the dad was told by Sputnik when dad says, hey, describe for me what happened. He says, well, you know, I, and I had this one guy and, you know, he wasn't too big. And, you know, and uh, and he says, uh, so I, I made a smart remark about him. You know, hey, you, you skinny, you know, pencil neck geek. You know, he said he called him all the names he could. And uh, then he says, uh, the, the guy wouldn't do anything. So he says, the guy's wife was standing there. So he says, is that your wife? And the guy goes, yes, it's my wife. And he goes, oh, she's an ugly. So, oh, my God, I've never seen that. He just started insulting his wife. So his wife, uh, you know, the cowboys, no, no, no. He, he realized, you know, that, it, it, but he knew who he was. You know, he's, he's a wrestler, you know, and I, I just don't think, you know, he's not, he's not going to jump on anything. So dad says, well, how the heck then did he finally punch you, sucker punch you? And he says, well, he said, I insulted him and then I insulted his wife. And he said, but when I reached and grabbed this horse's bridle and I jerked him. <laughs> said, you can talk about my wife, but don't mess with the horse. <laughs> yeah, don't mess with my horse. <laughs> He said, that guy, that cowboy knocked my, turned the lights out for me, right? So dad had this same predicament that you're basically explaining here, right? Uh, and so dad, what he did is, is he, he found the cowboy. He went and tracked the cowboy down that had knocked out Monroe. Because the next day's paper, well, you can imagine what the paper was, right? Showed Sputnik Monroe laying on the ground. <laughs> and the cowboy standing over him. And he's knocked out the toughest wrestler in town, right? So, uh, so dad goes over there and, and he, he finds the cowboy and he offers the cowboy. Now, this is back in, uh, I think this was probably 58, 59. He offered him five grand to wrestle. He said, give you $5,000 to wrestle Sputnik Monroe next Monday night. And uh, the cowboy, oh, he goes, oh, wow. He goes, I knew it. I knew it. He goes, I knew he had to be tougher than that. <laughs> I knew I couldn't knock him out with one punch. He goes, you're setting me up, ain't you? <laughs> you're just setting me up here, man. So, so uh, you know. Wait a minute, a wrestling promoter, Ron, setting someone up? That wouldn't have happened back yeah, then. Yeah, right? they, they, who would expect that, right? So, you know, the, the old cowboy, he refused to do it. And then dad got the paper to go back and follow up the story and say, hey, yeah, he did offer me $5,000 if I'd get in the ring with Spudding Monroe. But I got to feel like that Spudding Monroe is a lot tougher than he was. They, they, they wanting to hurt me, you know. So so uh, that's kind of how they how he handled it. Um, but uh, that's a bad situation. I mean, uh, you, you want your guys, wow, if they're going to be mouthy, they need to be tough. 
I don't know the situation. I never heard that story before where the Marines, I don't know how many, you know, did they all, all get on him or was it, you know, did, was it just uh, one at a time? Can't imagine uh, that all six of him would jump him, but uh, that, that puts you in a real bad, bad light, obviously. Well, I, I think I've, I've always heard that. I, I don't know how about it, how Eddie would have handled it, but I think Bill Watts, always told the guys in the locker room in Mid-South, look, if you're in a bar and you get in a fight, you better win or you're getting fired. Uh, end of story. Yeah, yeah. You can't have that type of thing happen to you. It kills your promotion. and Especially and if it gets out in the media, you know. Yeah, well, and, you know, and, the, and the media wanted that. The media really didn't like wrestling. Uh, you know, I don't know very many places other than Tampa where they had a great relationship with that sports department. Most sports departments did not like wrestling, and they took every shot that they could at you. And, uh, you know, I tried to tell my guys, uh, don't go to bars. That's the best way to keep it from happening is don't go to bars. But there was a few guys in the cruise from time to time, though, that I didn't have any concern about. You know, uh, I had Dick Slater there and Bob Root there and, uh, and some of those Wait, guys. Are you trying to say Dick Slater could handle himself in a bar? Yeah, yeah. Perry, yeah. he's really stretching it there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you had some guys that you didn't have to worry about. You know, they're, they're not going to get in a situation where they're, they're going to make a mistake. But, uh, you know, that's that was always probably been a problem for promoters and, and as far back as wrestling goes. Well, listen, Stud, on behalf of Barry and Lou and myself, we want to say we certainly appreciate you. It's, all, it's always a pleasure to talk wrestling history with the Stud. And uh, hearing the story about Don Curtis uh, snorkeling in a cave, doing basically a free dive. Uh, that's uh, that's good stuff and a testament to what an incredible athlete that Don Curtis was. And uh, we once again want to say how much we appreciate your time, my man. Yeah, thank you all very much. Always a pleasure to be on with you. Okay, you have a good one, Stud. All right. So, Barry, as we go to our match of the week this week, we're going to uh, January 22nd, 1980. Allentown, PA, made famous, of course, by Billy Joel and his song. I figured, who should we have to come on to discuss a little Bruno Sammartino and Larry Zabisco from back in the day, the WWWF, no E there, why it's our old friend Sean Good. Oh, no, 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 no. No, we don't know where Sean is, where he's in parts <laughs> unknown, not John, uh, John Hitchcock's old place. It's yeah. our old friend John McAdam back for his first appearance in over 193 episodes, Barry. You must have done something to piss me off, John. <laughs> I was going to say, if you guys made it to 194, I would definitely be unhappy. Yes, uh, there you go. So anyway, we thought we'd have John on not only to talk about his multitude of ex-girlfriends, probably more than Jerry Seinfeld even, but we wanted to talk about this historic event in the history of the WWWF, one of the great angles of all time. I don't think there's any questions about that. So we wanted to not only talk about the match that they had in Allentown, uh, we wanted to talk about some of the stuff that led up to the angle, some of the post-angle stuff, and generally, let's examine one of the all-time angles in the history of pro wrestling. Guys, what do you say? You down for that? I have a lot to say about this. Well, okay. I guess Barry doesn't have anything to say about this. He's going to be the silent partner this week. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Exactly. Rose, are you, are you uh, prepared to discuss a little Bruno and Larry Z? I'm I'm prepared. I've got some notes. I I meticulously watched this. Copious notes. Copious, copious notes. extra okay. copious. Penultimate copious. There you know you what go. I'm talking about. Yeah. So very excited so, though. And then after we're done, you know, I'm sure John will have a girlfriend story or two. Uh, anyway, just one. Yeah. Oh, okay, just one. 
So, guys, you see this match that the and let's be honest, the match itself is has eh, no great shakes, but the angle is what is what it's all about. So, the first question I have for you, John. The first thing I thought of was, boy, Bruno didn't wrestle on TV very often, did he? No, he didn't. I believe this was his first TV match since 1974, if wow. I'm not mistaken. Um, when I say that, I mean literally like from the arena. In 74, he wrestled Nikolai Volkov and Otto Von Heller on TV. And I, I think that was it since then. They you know, had clips from Madison Square Garden and you know him losing the belt to superstar Billy Graham. But Bruno on TV was mostly just a talker. Can we talk about how we got to the Larry Zbysko versus Bruno match? Well, I was going to ask you how long the setup was for this angle. I believe it was six weeks. Bruno was the commentary on, by the way, by then it was WWF uh, TV. He went how to go dare interview. You me. How dare you? I know. Uh, the ball's on me. Uh, one week, Bruno goes to interview Larry Zbysko, and Larry, like, doesn't hear him or misses him. Oh, and Bruno's like, oh, he just got done with a tough match. It's okay. The next week, Larry deliberately blows off Bruno. He just walked, you know, Bruno was there at the mic and Larry just quietly walks away. Third week, Vince McMahon comes out and asks Larry Zabisco what's going on. And Larry pours his heart out. He's like, you know, I've been wrestling for a long time and everyone calls me, you know, little Bruno, Bruno Jr. And I need to get out of Bruno's shadow. I, I want to wrestle Bruno right here on TV. Wow. Right. So the next week, I believe it was the next week that Bruno said no. He said, I can't go in there and try to hurt Larry. I can't, you know, risk breaking his arm, separating his shoulder. At the time, I'm like, Bruno, you wrestle thousands of matches where that stuff doesn't happen. Give the guy a break. But Bruno wouldn't do it. So the next week, Larry wrestles a squash match, I think against Jose Estrada. And he says, well, I hope everyone enjoyed that match because I'm done. Larry Zabisco's retiring. If I can't have this match with Bruno, I'll go do something else for a living. Bruno comes out and he's like, all right, I'll wrestle you, but there has to be a compromise. I'm not going to try to hurt you. I'll wrestle you, but I, you know, if I have a hold on you that's going to hurt you, make you submit, I'm going to let it go. Larry accepts those terms. Now we go to the next week where the match happens. So that's how we got here. All right. So, Barry, let me throw it to you. First of all, what do you think of the match? And then we'll get to the angle. Yeah, so you know what? This is one of those matches that you you have to look at in two different ways. You've <laughs> got to look at it. How impactful was this in 1980? And it was. This was a massive deal. This was, you know, even in the state of Florida, this is what a lot of people were actually talking about. You can go and you, you know, do you hear Bruno's protege? Bruno's son actually turned on him. So ringsiders were talking about it. If you look at this match in this current year, some 41 years later, it's average. It's average at best, but it does tell a story, and that's what's important. And what you said early on, this is a truly historical angle. This is kind of like, you know, when we've recently reviewed uh, Misawa, you know, getting the torch from Jumbo Sharuda. This is a historical, historical event. I think the execution was great. If I was going to find any fault with this in any form, and again, I don't think people in 1980 were looking for this or would have given a shit, but Bruno has no problem openly blading in front of the camera twice. And You're saying he wasn't Mr. Subtlety with the blade? He was. This may have been, this is Mike Graham Freebird level. <laughs> 
<laughs> if the, you know, the, and the I, chic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Guys that would just do it didn't give a shit. And so Bruno, the first time he does it, he's falling to the mat, and he you can see him. He touches his head quickly, and then. The second time they actually, which is also great, the camera gets a close-up of Bruno essentially blading the second time, and then Bruno tucks it into his pants. To Bruno's credit, and I like what John, I think the context that John just added was great, this was impactful in the fact that, A, Bruno wasn't a guy usually wrestling on television, but for his first time wrestling a match in six years, he's bleeding like a gusher, and then he actually gets stretchered out, so... I think the purpose, and obviously the purpose of this whole angle was to turn Larry, but it really, I think it really was an exclamation point. This really made a statement, and it made Larry look like this mean, vicious heel, and Bruno, the idol, the idol of all the Northeast, gets stretchered out, and he's a bloody mess. So, again, I think the match is what the match is. The angle is great, but from a historical perspective, this has got to rank right up there, though, Jeff. Would you agree? Yeah, and, you know, just a couple of very small points is the fact that he got stretchered face down. You know, yeah. this wasn't, you know, and I know that just sounds so stupid, but it made it appear so much more like, wow, this is actually, this is true life shit, man. Look, uh, you know, because so many times when they, they stretcher somebody out, it's like I was waiting for Zabisco to come back and freaking tip over the stretcher because that seemed like that used to be a thing to do. So, John, what do you think of the match? I thought it was a really good match, all things considered. Um, Bruno, you know, went by his word when, you know, he had Larry Zabisco in a bear hug and it looked like Larry was going to quit. Bruno let him go. One thing about the match I want to talk about Zabisco being a heel. My feeling to this day, my feeling watching it back in 1980 when I was 15 years old is this was Larry Zabisco's Super Bowl. This was the biggest match in his life. And Bruno's treating it like it's a workout, like it's a lark. And I could just see Larry's side of the story. And I think that's what made it a great angle. Like, you could see why Larry would be pissed off. Sure. And so many, so many things that are done like this, it's always like the guy that is, uh, is being, in a way, like he feels disrespected. You know, yes. like, and, and your point is, is absolutely correct. I wouldn't say it's 100% correct, Barry, but it's correct. And that... You said that, you know, like uh, Bruno's treating this like it's a workout and Larry, this is his Super Bowl. This is everything to him. And, you know, Bruno will get him in a hold and they're like, oh, I'm just going to break it because I'm a nice guy. You know, so a quick question for you that I this is for both of you. How bad was Bruno's wig? We got to talk about that. <laughs> uh, so it, 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 I've seen it worse. You know, I, I've seen worse examples of Bruno's it looked wig. like something crawled on his head and died. Yeah, Let's be honest. It, it looks like a living animal on a lot of ways. Yeah, it does. It does. The one thing I did like about this match, and I know that this is, you know, all part of the whole Bruno and Larry Zabisco and I guess the whole aura between the two of them. But the physical, the, their bodies and the, the physicality and how they're so similar to me, that's just incredible. But I, I thought Larry looked really, really good here. And for a guy that had never been a heel before, he just flipped in one second, which I thought was great. He came across as this killer heel, and I love that aspect of it. And he, you know, I sent Barry a link to an interview, and I'll post that in our group, Barry, where they both, and I'm watching the interviews, and so many times you see an interview when a feud set up where it's like, well, the heel is great, but the baby face isn't so good, or the baby face is great and the heel, hey, kind of missed a mark there. Boy, both guys really sold the feud 
And man, they just lived the fact that they hated one another, John. They did. You know, one thing I would have changed about the feud, and everyone's going to say, wait a minute, the feud was successful. But Larry Zbysko left the WWF in early 1979 after having a run with the tag team belts with Tony Gurria. And those two were pushed equally. Like, you know, I can't tell you who the star of that tag team was, who Batman was, who Robin was. They were equals. You've got the guy who's Tony Gurria's equal, and you're going to try to put him in the main event at Madison Square Garden. I think what they needed to do when Larry returned was to build, do something to build him up a little bit. Have him pin, I don't know, Johnny Valiant or the Iron Sheik clean on TV. A big name who's on their way out. They didn't do that. He was just the same old Larry Zbysko, Tony Gurria level wrestler, and I think he needed help. Now, once again, it worked. No question, it worked. Larry got over. But it's like playing basketball and taking a shot at midcourt in the middle of the first quarter. Yeah, it goes in, but the coach still looks at you and says, hey, what are you doing? Yeah. And i tell you something else about the angle that I really liked that I thought really helped sell the angle is at the very end, as they're putting Bruno on their stretcher and they're beginning to carry him out the ring, they did a crowd shot. And they went in on an old lady who has her hand over her mouth and looks completely horrified. That, by God, Bruno San Martino is being stretchered out of the ring. Oh, my God, that was absolutely perfect by the producer or whoever did that. And it was because Larry stuck a knife in his back. Yeah, and it, it just, uh, Barry, am I, am I correct? It, it just, it sold the angle so beautifully. Jeff, you are 100% correct. Check. Okay, so, John, let me ask you, I think the feud carried into, did it go past the Shea Stadium sh- show? Yes, it did. In different markets, I think Philadelphia had Bruno versus Larry after that, and maybe, no, Baltimore had finished, I think Pittsburgh had finished as well, so I think just Philadelphia. One good thing about the angle, or the the feud, is Bruno was the commentator sitting alongside Vince McMahon, and when Larry Zbysko came out to wrestle after that match, Bruno refused to speak. He refused to even acknowledge Larry Zbysko's existence. No, and in the interview that I mentioned that I'm going to post is Bruno actually, he comes out and calls him a Judas. It was, it yes. was just awesome. <laughs> I said, oh, my God. So your thoughts, John, why did uh, Zabisco end up? Yeah, you know, because let's be honest, they could have gotten a couple years out of this program because it was that well done. The guys were so invested. This could have been really Bruno. You know, uh, he had the last match with George the Animal Steel somewhere. This could have been the last golden run for Bruno uh, in his in his WWF days. So why did this, in your mind, get cut short? I honestly don't think it got cut short, Jeff. Well, I mean, I mean, Zabisco ends up leaving, and there's, of course, all kind of stories as to why he left. But do you think they could have milked it longer? Let me put it that way. I, I really don't. The New York market had three Bruno San Martino versus Larry Zabisco matches, which is kind of the limit. Boston had two, Baltimore had two. I think everyone else got a lumberjack match to blow it off instead of uh, only New York got the cage match. But I I think it went, you know, the standard long WWF feud, which is three matches. So why didn't Larry get a, uh, or did he get, did he get a program with Backlund? Well, yes, he did. He wrestled Backlund twice in Philadelphia. The month before Shea Stadium, he had a match against Backlund in Madison Square Garden. The only time Bob Backlund lost a match and didn't get back at the heel in a rematch. Okay, so 
Now that we're done with that, let me just uh, add a little side note to this. And and I will say that I've not prepped either guy for this Uh-oh. question. So this is going to be on the fly. Barry right. mentioned how blatant that Bruno's blade job was. So I'm going to ask both of you guys, tell me who was the, it doesn't have to be a uh, WWF, throughout wrestling, who was the most subtle guy at the using the blade and who was the most blatant guy using the blade? Barry, who do you think? Most blatant guy to me would be Joe LaDuke. Joe would just take it out, cut his forehead, middle of the ring, no, no attempt to hide anything and just start to bleed like a gusher. Subtle, I don't know who would be subtle. I'd have to think well, about I tell you what, I tell you, you think yeah. about it for a second. John, who you got? Well, as far as most flagrant, Albano wins the award for doing it the most time. Oh, I mean, he'll he just was, stand he there and cut his forehead. I have a friend in Chicago who told me a story about like the early 70s in the amphitheater. Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch were wrestling as a tag team, and the fans just started chanting, we want blood, we want blood. And Murdoch says, okay, and he just pulls the blade out of his trunks and like gets on the ring apron and just starts cutting his head in front of everybody. That's fairly blatant. I will uh, I will agree. So, okay, <laughs> what, what about subtle? Who was uh, the most subtle? You got anybody? You know, off the top of my head, and by the way, just about all this off the top of my head, I would say Bob Backlund. I mean, I never really noticed Backlund doing it. Okay, I'm going to say for most blatant uh, was the Sheik, because it was uh, much like John said. You know, it just he would literally just stand there and, and start sawing his head. So I'm going to tell you not necessarily that this person was subtle all the time, but one of my all-time favorite most subtle blade jobs that was so quick you couldn't even catch it was, at least I I say I couldn't catch it. Now, of course, somebody on the board will go, oh, I can't believe it. I fucking totally saw that. <laughs> Is the angle in UWF, God bless our old UWF, when Missy used the Gucci bag on John yeah. Tatum. She hits John Tatum with the Gucci bag. Tatum, as he's falling back towards the ring apron, does the slice, and it was quicker to hiccup. And I, and I remember seeing that going, fuck, that was just, that was really good. He did that really great. You got anything, Bear? So if I'm going to go subtle, you know what? I'm going to toss this one to Steve Kern only because Steve Kern wasn't a guy that did a lot of blading. Uh, that job usually in a, on a Florida card was left to Dusty or one of Dusty's opponents. But Steve Kern, because Mike didn't bleed a lot when they were a tag team, Steve would be the one that would, would get juice. But Steve was really subtle about it. And he usually would kind of lean over. He w- was outside of the ring. He would lean over and put his head near the mat or the ring apron and then come up and would be a bloody mess. But he was fairly subtle. Like you weren't seeing any like exaggerated movements or anything like that. So I'll go with Steve. All right. So now before we let John uh, go on his merry way, John has promised us a uh, John McAdam girlfriend story. Uh, those of you who listen to the show, well familiar with the fact that John McAdam pretty much in the, uh, in the podcast world in the old wrestling sheet writers world, uh, is pretty much the flair of the group. Uh, you know, so uh, he is known for being quite the ladies' man. So, John, you told us you had a story about, uh, what do you call it, one of your crazy ex-girlfriends. I, of course, yeah, I, you were smart enough to just keep him as girlfriends. I married the fucking crazy girls that I knew. So tell us your crazy ex-girlfriend story, Mr. McAdam. Okay, none of this is true about me being the Ric Flair of anything, but. Oh, except well, for- not, not, you know, woo, maybe not the baby arm <laughs> thing, but, you know. If you have heard the Stick to Wrestling podcast on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, which I host, you've heard the story, but I'll tell it anyway. It's summer 1985, 
and I am driving around with my girlfriend. We stop at a gas station slash convenience oh, store. Her name, her name, just first name. What's her first name? Her name was Dawn. And Dawn. I later learned in life, oh. never date anyone named Dawn because they're all crazy. Dawn and what's the other one? I don't know. Right. <laughs> but anyway. I can give you my ex-wives names if you'd like, but I digress. <laughs> all right. So we're we're driving around. And we get back in the car, and all of a sudden, my girlfriend is in a screaming match with some dude. And she just yells, fuck you, with this guy. And he goes, yeah, well, fuck you. And she goes, yeah, fuck you. I'm like, what is going on here? And I look, and it's Larry Zabisco yelling at my girlfriend. <laughs> and what? <laughs> all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Dawn and Larry are in a screaming match. So I get out of the car and look, I wonder what it was like to be Larry Zabisco at this moment. I get out to say, you know, tell this guy to not stop saying fuck you to my girlfriend. And I look, it's, it's Larry Zabisco. And I'm just like, Larry Zabisco. <laughs> and he just like waved his hand at me and, and drove off. And Don's like, you know, that asshole. I'm like, yeah, that's Larry Zabisco. He's a big time pro wrestler. And she's like, he's an asshole. So what, what actually happened was he asked her, he's like, hey, you know, is, is it pump or pay first? And she didn't hear him. She's like, what? And he goes, is it pump or pay first? And that's when she's like, fuck you. And he's like, and that's when they started yelling, fuck you, back and forth at each other. Well, so now, and my brush with greatness, Kingsboro, Mass. Was the girlfriend possibly thinking that Larry was referring to her instead of the gasoline pump or what? I think that she didn't hear him. She's like, I'm sorry, what? And he, said back to her in a very annoyed voice, pump or pay first. And he's like, fuck you. Yeah, okay. Wow. So, good stuff. John, I want to thank you for joining us, talking a little Larry Z. Uh, and who knew that we were going to have a Larry Z side story there? So, uh, thumbs up to you on that, John. But we appreciate you talking a little Bruno San Martino, Larry Zabisco history. We would encourage all the folks out there that listen to uh, this fine uh, podcast, break and give it a break, to check out our Arcadian brother, uh, John McAdam, and his random roving guest of the week on the Stick to Wrestling podcast, Johnny Mac. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me on. It was, it's always fun talking to you guys. All right. Have a good one, my man. Bye-bye. Barry, now it is time for that segment where we talk about this week in CWF history. We are going June 29th. What you got for me, my man? And this is, Jeff, this is one of those dates that always excites me because a match took place here that I think is arguably one of the most historic matches in the history of professional wrestling that nobody ever talks about, that nobody knows even existed. If we don't point it out that it took place, people don't know. And no, I'm not being sarcastic, believe it or not. But on the 29th in 1982, Jeff, check this out and then start to do the math on world champions and guys who should have been world champions. You've got a six-man bunkhouse match, Terry Funk, Dory Funk Jr., and Stan Hansen versus Harley Race, Dusty Rhodes, and David Von Erich. Let that sink in for a minute. That's pretty good. That's pretty incredible. So you've got one, two, three. You've got four NWA World Heavyweight Champions. You've got an AWA World Heavyweight Champion, David Von Erich, which we've been told from reliable sources that he was on dock to, uh, to win the NWA World Heavyweight title. That is just, to me, an astounding matchup. And I got to say, David Von Erich actually showed up for this card as well, Jeff. Well, then that's probably the rarest of all. 
Absolutely. We also, on this date, we also have two Florida tag title changes, Steve Kern and Bob Backlund. And this is, you know, Bob Backlund, he's often maligned for the later years of his career and, and certainly towards the end of his his title run, his WWF title run. But Bob Backlund in the 70s was actually a very solid professional wrestler. He was a rugged, strong, scientific baby face. But there was something about Bob that had he stayed that way, I, I think he would have done extremely well also. Obviously, he did great because he... Uh, became a world champion, but you know, he was a little cartoonish then, but this version of Bob Backlund, I was a big fan, but Steve Kern and Bob Backlund defeating Bob Roop and Bob Orton Jr. to win the belts that taking place in 76 in Tampa, four years earlier in the city of Jacksonville, Taurus and Zodiac Taurus being Dennis Hall, who we talked about a few weeks back, Jeff Zodiac being the senior Bob Orton defeating Great Malenko and a pre-Mr. Wrestling to Johnny Walker to win the Florida Tag Team title. So a couple of title changes, which is always good. We got some other very strong matchups. Moving back to 1955, young wrestler named Don Colt, who you will know better as Don Fargo, working with Bob Langevin. Bob Langevin, too, in later years, became a promoter in and around Montreal, I think it was Bob Legs Langevin, if I'm correct. Kind of a famous name. Great Malenko facing Wahoo McDaniel in a Russian chain match on the 1967 Jacksonville card. No juice. No juice. No, no. If you had Wahoo in a chain match, you weren't going to get any blood. No, that wasn't happening. But here's an interesting match right here. Loser leaves town matchup on the 1971 Fort Myers card. Ronnie Garvin defeating Robert Fuller. And this all played into, because I know we've, we've discussed this numerous times, this all played into the feud between Ronnie Garvin and Ron Fuller. So Robert Fuller dropping that, having to get out. This was a match that really caught my eye for some reason. And it, I think it's more off of the time frame of it. 1971 Tampa, Dory Funk Jr. Dis- defending the NWA World's Heavyweight title against Bob Roop. And that may have been Bob's first title uh, shot. I don't recall him, especially in 71. He was working mid-card. He was part of a tag team. Certainly had strong amateur credentials. I got to interrupt this. Jeff, have you ever seen this fucking commercial for Jardians? (laughs) (laughs) I I know I'm completely... Take a turn off the main highway there? (laughs) Slightly. This will be the most left turn of all time. So my television's on, and it's a a commercial for this medicine called Jardians. I uh, am familiar with Jardians. Yes, I am. It's a diabetes medicine, and they've got – because I don't have any volume on, but underneath it says a (laughs) a (laughs) – this is why I started laughing. A potentially – and there's nothing funny about this. So first off, let me say – I have a very strange sense of humor. There's nothing funny about this. It says a potentially fatal infection of the perineum. And then in quotation marks, it says taint. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I hate when you get an infection of the taint. That is, there is nothing that'll kill worse you. Than that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, in big letters, it says also says anus, you know, wow. <laughs> So, hold hold yes. on, since I, uh, Barry, I uh, will break a fave. I am a Jardians user. Hold on. Really? Yes, I am. Uh, now, my, my taint feels pretty good. Okay, that's the first time that's ever been uttered on this uh, fine podcast. <laughs> so please continue now I that I uh, have I checked my taint. 
<laughs> you checked your taint. So I, I but Barry, I, to be fair to the listener, yes. could you do me a favor? Just real quick, check your taint so check that both taint. of us will say we checked our taint. <laughs> My taint's in Wales. Okay. <laughs> Wales! <laughs> Wales! There's That's our Wales you, reference. Uh, so, all right, getting back to this. So, uh, <laughs> getting off the taint. Getting off taint and Jardians. I, I remember, wasn't the state in CWF history that Perry Neum won the Southern title <laughs> yes. at the High Life Fronton? Uh, he was working babyface, I think. Yes, he was, indeed. absolutely. Oh, yeah. Not a later, though, actually. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, um, he had a bit of a smell to him, though. That's what I heard. <laughs> but um, boom, thank you very much. Okay. Right. The match was called after, you know, he maintained yeah. a four-hour erection without contacting yeah. his doctor. <laughs> Have you ever seen the commercial, though, with the woman on the balloons? She's taking a hot air balloon and life <laughs> great, you know? Until our, our, left, our left turn is taking a right turn. Go ahead. <laughs> Lady on the balloon. Yes. Let's hey. keep it between the ditches, guys. All right. All right. So get, getting back to this day, like anybody gives a shit at this point. Yeah. We're, we're now now somebody's out there going, I really don't want to fucking hear about Bob Orton Jr. anymore. <laughs> get back to your taint. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so we'll wrap this up shortly. So, uh, <laughs> so also taking place on that Tampa card in 1971, it's a Texas death match between I'm Jack. Gonna and make, I'm going to make this the check your taint episode of Breaking. Oh, and and that's it. That's what took place on this date in CWF history. Oh, Barry, just uh, this is going to become the most popular segment on on our fine uh, farm podcast. <laughs> I got to start to keep the TV on. I never do that. That's, yeah, that's you know, I always love those commercials where it's like, you know, oh, if you're having problem with your blood pressure, uh, this would be recommended for you. By the way, you will grow a second head. You know, as if uh, maybe that's something we should consider before we take the blood pressure medication, Barry. Yeah, and I'm sitting here, and I'm and I, you know, the other day I was watching this, and and my Zach was over on Father's Day, and we're watching, and the commercial comes up, and he goes. I got to be honest, I, I'm take, I'm getting diabetes then. I fuck it. I'm not taking, <laughs> I'll take the diabetes. I, I don't want my fucking taint to be infected and I die. I'm like, I nah, get you. There's nothing worse than an infected taint. So, so you know, Barry, the other day I'm listening to the old Sirius uh, XM and the guy that was uh, the DJ for that particular segment was talking about uh, as a song came on and I'll, discuss what song it was. And he said, you know, if you ever ran across somebody who had never listened to rock music and you wanted to give them an example of what exactly is rock music, hey, this is what rock music is or was. This is an example. And the example they gave was a song by uh, The Faces called Stay With Me. So it was a staple for a long time at Rod Stewart's uh, live concerts and stuff like that. Are uh, you familiar with the song, Bear? Oh, very familiar. Absolutely. Yeah, good song. Good, a good uh, bar type setting song, you know, where, where people are just rocking. And, you know, the face is familiar uh, to those that, that are into like party bands and kind of stuff. But it got me thinking, Barry, if you were going to come up, let's just say three songs. You got somebody that just moved to this country from uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, not a All big right. haven for rock music, let's dare I say. So, and you want to say, hey, come over here. I'm going to play you. Three songs. This is what rock music is really like, and I want you to enjoy it. Give me a couple songs, Barry. Give me three songs that you're going to play for this person. This, look, this is a very sensitive subject when you stop and think, because you could potentially sway this person. You know, if you play something shitty, some shitty form of rock, uh, like you know, God forbid, like yacht rock. 
or soft rock, you could taint this. Oh, wait, wait, like, like you're thinking Zaha, is he going to play some, uh, some, uh, air supply, uh, something like that. <laughs> I was at, so I did have Zaha in mind, but I'm actually Jeff, my first song Ace of Spades by oh, by oh, See now, now Zaha right there. He he's gonna he's gonna send you a private message. Oh Barry, I love you so much. <laughs> and the perfect answer. It's like Javorsky. If you have a Kiss song, he's gonna yeah. go. Oh yeah, that's it. Well, that, news, Jeff, I have no Kiss songs on my list. <laughs> <laughs> you in fact do not want to rock and roll all night and party every day. Is that what you're saying? Or are you gonna go Beth? Uh, well, and I think let's be honest. If I was to choose one Kiss song, I think Beth is probably the song. I, I you know, but that I would avoid. That's I, a rocker. I, yeah, when I think of rock and roll, too, the first thing I think of is I, I, I think of high energy. I think of something that's going to grab me by the shoulders, shake me, shake me violently, and going to leave an impression on me. And that's why I would go. I would go with, you know, they, a lot of people consider Ace of Spades the greatest rock and roll song of all time. Whether you like it or dislike it, who, who, I mean, who it is. People, by the way, besides Zaha, who, who is the person that says, and I'm not, I'm not shitting on Ace of Spades. It's a great, I know fucking uh, Triple H, I'm sure, gets an erection every time that comes on the radio. But, but besides <laughs> Triple H and Zaha, who are these people saying that that song is the greatest fucking rock song of all time? Well, no, I, I've read that somewhere that it was considered not, and it's not, I think to quantify that too, it's not like the best. It, it exemplifies rock and roll the way rock and roll is supposed to be exemplified. And I think that it's supposed to grab you by the balls. It's supposed to squeeze tight and you're supposed to get a rush from it, which I know I do. Okay. So that's your first song. My first song, I'm going to go Rolling Stones, Honky Tonk Women. What do you think? Yeah. A very good choice. Yeah. So that that's the, you know, again, a, a kind of song that you could hear in a bar, in a small arena, and just, you know, kick you right in the ass and, uh, you know, and, and, and take you on a nice rock ride. And, uh, you know, you just be uh, enjoying yourself, you know? I know that I'm enjoying myself even hearing you discuss that song. And uh, it's, I, hope, it I hope you're not enjoying yourself with your pants down. That's another story and another Saving subject. Saving that for the Patreon episode. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Bear, yeah, I could just see that now. Patreon episode, Barry plays with himself. That's... <laughs> That's and then the next one, I'll be shitting on lawns. That's, exactly. that's that'll be the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, Joe, Joe Christie, right now with the erection. Joe Christie, take my three dollars, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, what will be your second choice, Barry? So, my second one is I'm going to stick with what I believe rock and roll, which is high energy, and I'm going to tap into the the deep well of ACDC. And this is a tough one because a good well though. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and let's face it, there's every single song of ACDC to me is a really good representation of rock and roll. I'm going to go with Thunderstruck just because ah, it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Thunderstruck is one that immediately when it starts off with uh, the guitar, Angus Young on that guitar, you're just you're, you're not sitting at that point. You're standing up. You're feeling the energy. And that's what rock and roll is feeling that fucking energy, man. Yeah. You could have gone back in black. You could have gone uh, shook me all night long. You could have gone whole lot of Rosie. Yeah, there's, I mean, I, I think the entire catalog of ACDC, when you, you know, it's uh, for those about to rock, Dirty Deeds, Dunder Cheap, it's unlimited. But uh, to me, Thunderstruck, and it's, it really is the intro of that song, which I had as a ringtone for years. I just think that is so fucking killer. 
And, and you know, somewhere out there, there's a listener right now going, if it's not a Bon Scott song, go fuck yourself. Uh, you know, because uh, <laughs> my second one, I think, uh, is a good, again, a little older song, but grab you by the short hairs and pull you into what they're selling. A little twist and shot by the Beatles, Barry. What do you think? Uh, yeah. It's nice. So song. if you're going to do a Beatles song, what, what would be one, uh, a little, a little toe tapper, get you on the dance floor, get you shaking your head back and forth. Uh, that's a hard one. That's what she said. That is what, yeah. Well, that's what we hope she said. Right. Maybe I want to hold your hand. Maybe I want to hold your hand. I don't know. All right. right. Uh, I believe we have received word late word. Hold on. We've got a phone call coming in. Our man Sweet Lou is going to join the conversation. Lou, oh hey there. Do you have do you have your three songs? It's Barry and I with only one left each. What do you got? Okay, so and please let it be a song people have heard of. Don't do some fucking deep dive by the Velvet Underground or some shit like that. Now I'm going to get the Velvet Underground. Okay, well, there goes Not, heroin. Oh, um, <laughs> he just threw out his list. <laughs> Say, Please offer whatever you got. I'm, I'm also considering not only the uh, sonic quality of the rock and roll song, but also the being emblematic of a of a certain age. So I don't, you know, it, I'm hard pressed to think of anything past like 1995. But trying to keep it, you know, within a, a localized scope, uh, one song for me would be. From 1970s Funhouse album, uh, The Stooges, it's called Down on the Street. And it's a song and it's an album that is, it just comes at you dirty and greasy. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and it comes with an attitude. Well, that's uh, rock and roll is dirty, greasy with an attitude. That sums it up. That's a good one. Yeah. Number two, if we're talking ACDC, I, I consider Back in Black, so now that that's out there, I'd say from the High Voltage album, TNT. Mm, TNT, Dynamite. Good choice. I that's like that song. song. Yeah, yeah, it's a great song. Yeah. And number three, Lou? Ah, let's see. Uh, choosing from here and there. Um, 1980s, was there anything just hard rocking? Mm. Wait, wait, you're talking with Mr. 80s Barry Rose here, so don't be dismissing oh, the 1980s, yeah. Lou. Please never dismiss the 80s, absolutely. I know, I know. I could throw it and save it for later by the beat, but <laughs> it's a beautiful song, but I don't think it has that gut feeling of just want to jump up and down and break stuff. True, but you know, you look at the, maybe from 86 on, which was kind of, I, I think that's roughly right around the time of like hair metal and the birth of hair metal. And as much as I'm not a big fan of a lot of those bands, the, the Poisons, the Motley Crews and, you know, Cinderella's and stuff like that. They no, wait a minute. Out. Don't be dismissing Cinderella here, mister. I actually like that one song, though. What was that? You don't know what you got till it's gone. Yeah, that exactly. Was a, yeah, that was a hell of a song. But it, the majority of those hair bands, too, there was a lot of energy. You know, there was just a lot of craziness, which, again, I think that's what exemplifies rock and roll. Right. As much as I didn't like the songs. Right. Right. And, I mean, you could, you know, pick one of Motley Crue's early ones, like Looks Like Kill or sure, Shout at the Devil. I, I'm thinking just emblematic of, you know, kind of how that started. 
And here I am picking three songs from the 70s, but Running With the Devil by Van Halen. Good choice. Good choice. choice. It was revolutionary sounding, and it was the, you know, the beginning. This is, if you're going to take your first shot in the music field, and it's going to be remembered uh, for decades, that's the fucking song. Yeah, yeah. Your first uh, first at plate appearance, and you swung for the fences. That's what the boys did, and they definitely knocked it out of the park. No yeah, question. Get a grand slam off Cy Young. Yeah, exactly. So, Barry, what would be your third song now? So my third one, I'm going to tie in a little wrestling with this one. Oh, I am going. What? Yeah, exactly. I am going to go Led Zeppelin's "The Immigrant Song," and uh, there's a lot that you know. Obviously, we're going to stay far away from uh, you know "Stairway to Heaven," but at this, you know, yeah. So Howard, this... Howard Baum would be looking "Stairway to Heaven." I'm going to fucking be <laughs> "Stairway to Heaven." Yeah, but you know, Zeppelin, much like Van Halen, actually, there is a lot that you can you can choose from when you get in the Led Zeppelin category. And I like, you know, Immigrant Song too. It's another one of those songs that the second you hear it, especially if you're a wrestling fan, there is a pop that actually occurs. You know, I, I was in a restaurant, I don't know, two weeks ago, and the immigrant song came on, and immediately I'm like, huss, huss, you know, I'm, I'm You're feeling swinging the chain over your head is what you started. If doing. I had one, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> I'd be swinging that shit. So yeah, that's it. Yeah, there there are so many really good songs that are out there that are indicative. But I think an important thing, Jeff, you said this early on. You said, "All right, so this person is coming from Saudi Arabia." So to answer that, or to, to a question I posed at both you and the sweet man himself, do your selections change depending on where the individual is coming from? So whether they're coming from, let's say, Saudi Arabia, or maybe they're coming from Nigeria, or maybe even Dublin, would you change your selection? Or, Barry, maybe they're coming from Wales! Wales! You get the John Lee reference in there. So, uh, Lou, could you give us your best deep-throated Wales? <clears throat> Wales. That's for you, John. So, uh, I know you make a fair point. Uh, you know, obviously you maybe uh, you're going to steer your musical taste uh, a different direction. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, this is, this is more, uh, you know, like I, I thought you were going to mention Russia, but we're, you know, Russia has been exposed to, to American music or, you know, British music or whatever, uh, rock music. And, you know, and certainly like places like Japan stuff, I, I'm talking about countries that have had, dare I say more of a sheltered, like, like mainland China, Probably not a huge exposure to, uh, you know, the, the the classic rock of the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Barry, there's a transition for you, by the way. Oh. My final song is going to come from the 90s. Boom! Yes! So, and it's funny because it's a band that, you know, I like, but I'm not super fucking crazy about them. Just because I really hate the lead singer, who I think is, based on everything I heard, a complete fucking asshole. And uh, that is uh, Guns N' Roses. But here's what happened. I used to collect hockey fight tapes. And back in the day when, of course, people sold videotapes instead of streaming services. And so uh, this guy had put these hockey fights, made like music videos out of them uh, with a couple different songs and stuff like that. So this one particular tape, I popped it in. And the song You Could Be Mine comes on. And now are you familiar with the song where I have top of your head, oh. Absolutely. So there's a long drum intro into the song. And on the video, you see guys basically dropping the gloves and they're circling one another, getting ready to throw down. And finally, 
when the song, you, you know, when the, the, the guitar and the lyrics kick in, that's when they start just wailing away at one another. And it's just for a guy that did it on an amateur basis, it was absolutely fantastic. And I, I don't have the tape anymore. I gave it to someone that I used to know. And oh. so I, I don't have access to it anymore. Otherwise, I would totally fucking post it because it was done so incredibly well. And when I saw that, I was not super familiar because I wasn't, you know, like I said, I, I, I liked some of Guns N' Roses, but I wasn't like a huge mark for them. So I didn't know every fucking song they did. And I heard this and I go, oh my God, this song is fucking perfect for this tape. It's just a kick-ass, get you going. And the kind of song that I, I would have been one of those people waiting for, for, uh, you know, Axel to come out three hours fucking uh, after showtime uh, was uh, scheduled. Uh, and, you know, because of course, God forbid, Axel should ever be on time for any concert. But uh, I would actually go and see Guns N' Roses if they would fucking play that song because I fucking love the song, You Could Be Mine. That's a great song. It's, uh, and that, Guns N' Roses, much like Lou bringing up Van Halen, I think Guns N' Roses is a, uh, just a tremendous, trem- there's a, the, the wealth of songs that they have you know sweet child of mine obviously welcome to the jungle but uh there's november just so rain there. uh, wrestling fans who like ecw may be familiar with the song november rain bear yeah yeah a lot of good selections with them as well i like that all right barry time for the old go home fun episode talking a little music talking a little cwf history talking a little taint uh you know the whole whole nine yards uh and uh uh, always fun to have John McAdam join us for the first time in over 190 episodes, Barry. So you just better watch yourself. You're going on vacation, hoping you come back. I don't have to <laughs> There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so what? He was a fantastic guest. And I got to say Ron Fuller, too. I, I, you know, Ron Fuller is one of those guys. And this is probably explains the uh, the popularity and success of his podcast, the Studcast. He uh, I could just sit and listen to Ron talk for hours. Yes. A wealth of historical knowledge about the pro wrestling business. That is our man, the Tennessee Stud. All right. So on behalf of my co-host, Barry Rose, and our producer, the sweet man, Luke Kippelman, out in the Bay Area, I am Jeff Bowdrin. They call me the Booker. And until next week, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Take it home, Luke.